I'm standing in front of a welcome pole at the entrance of the Sandwich Peninsula Hospital, located on the southern tip of Vancouver Island. Looking at these sculptures carved from cedar trees, with the hospital just to my right, I'm thinking about the virus and how it has made visible the interconnectedness of human and animal bodies, and the fragile health of not only people, but forest habitats. And I can't help but stare at the carved wooden figures before me as they rise up in a landscape now naked of trees. The forests here in Saanich were felled many decades ago to make way for British settlements. And just like COVID-19, the disease of colonialism has yet to subside. And this makes me wonder, how does one reconcile the courtesy of being welcomed against a backdrop of settler imaginaries that have destroyed and continue to destroy forests and salmon and whales and deer and numerous other beings to make way for noisy highways and massive tracts of suburban housing and industrial wastelands? How exactly does one understand the haunting figure of the welcome pool as it sits on lands that have been wholly degraded by settler activities? From the Tree Museum, I'm Fawn Daphne Plessner, and this is Talking Territory. Part one, welcome pools and cedar trees. In this episode, we talk with the Coast Salish artist Tomasin, also known as Charles Elliott, about the meaning of welcome poles. In recognition of his contribution to reviving the visual language of Coast Salish art, Tomasin was awarded the Order of British Columbia. We interviewed him at his studio, situated on the site of his family home, on the reserve lands of Tsartup First Nation, which is located on the Saanich Peninsula, the southern tip of what is currently called Vancouver Island, BC, Canada. First, I just want to say thank you so much, Charles, for having us here in your beautiful studio. I can't thank you enough because it's a real honour to be here, and I mean that genuinely. I was just wondering if you could start by you introducing yourself first. So, I squachos, Nequilia, Asa Tomasin, from Stoslip First Nation in Hussainich territory. Um, good day. Um, I'm Tomasin, and we're here in uh, Coast Salish territory uh, with, to do this interview. Thank you. It's important too, isn't it, for us to know that we're on the reserve, mm-hmm. the traditional winter village. Tertip is the name of the village here. The whole territory is Saanich. Right. You've created um, a number of welcome poles and other artworks that are well-received and well-known throughout um, not only Usainich territory but beyond mm-hmm. in other parts of Canada. I'm particularly interested in the welcome poles mm-hmm. and your work uh, over the years in, in developing these welcome poles. Could you give us a little bit more information? I know in um, more northern First Nations cultures there's just uh, certain carved figures that were deemed to be just welcome. Right. But um, in our Coast Salish, we carved a great number of human figure poles who were ancestral, or representation of ancestors who would have been welcome figures. And so we didn't just have one, we had numbers of uh, carved figures 
that would um, be welcome to visitors. So basically, uh, Kosadis carve a lot of human figures, and uh, many of them are welcome figures mm. to welcome visitors. Yeah. That was one of my questions, exactly that, is that much of the iconography does tend to be of a human form, and, and thank you for the clarification that traditionally these were specific people that would have been honoured through mm. being represented. Can you tell us more about these hand gestures? Because there's a number of different positions, the way the hands are arranged, or if they're holding things. In one case, there's the pole with the hands completely outstretched, as if the hands are protruding in front of the pole. And then I know you're currently working on a pole with the hand placed almost close to the body. I've seen the hands placed across the body where the hand is almost on the heart. And then other times with the hand open again, but when the welcome figure is holding something like a paddle, etc. I'm curious to know if there's specific meanings that go with these gestures. So could mm-hmm. you talk us through these different meanings? Yeah, I think um, from my experience growing up with um, relatives and uncles and aunts and grandfathers and so on and so forth, the Kosalish are actually, I, th- I think we use our hands a lot. And we we're trying to figure out uh, one day, what does Salish mean? And uh, the closest we could come to it was Salish, which means hands. Mm. So it would uh, make sense that we were called Salish because of our use of our hands a lot. Yeah. And they may not have been the earlier the settlers and that might have not been saying Salish, they, they could have been trying to say Salish. These are the hand people, they're always using their hands for everything. We do have different ways of holding our hands for different meanings. We have a gesture like where we actually put both hands up and move them, mm-hmm. which means thank you. Right. Thank you, yeah. And uh, welcome is just outstretched, outstretched like welcome. Um, and the hands are cupped upwards, are they? Like the hands are outstretched um, with the hands mm, mm, or, or they're facing? Yeah, basically. Yeah. They can be either way, I think. Yeah. But that's why we use the hands a lot. And sometimes it's just one hand for mm-hmm. uh, welcome. Mm. And uh, sometimes it's two hands. Uh, but we do use our, even in uh, Doug's drawing, so I could see the hand up like he's inviting people to be friendly and if you were to put it across your heart you'd be telling them this is a heartfelt words that I'm going to say to you or that I've said to you mm. yeah so you you know your heart is your sympathy and your love yeah. and your all that sort of thing and you're referring to Douglas Fortune's work just now so if we're to look at that as an example he has the hand mm-hmm. on the uh, I, shoulder. I feel uh, by looking at it, uh, a gesture of uh, friendship or wanting to be friends. So it's sort of like uh, come, come forward and right. let's talk, let's be friends, you know. Mm-hmm. And their hands again are used to convey the message of uh, let's 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 start to talk. Yeah, the the way we uh, carve them and think about them before we carve them would kind of tell us how to carve them, yeah.
I've noticed in your own welcome pose, there are sometimes animals incorporated with the pole. And I'm just curious to know, what does it mean to bring animals into these welcome poles? Well, I would think um, that, um, you know, we as people, we um, believe we have animal spirit guides, and they would be the spirits of different animals that we could count on, that we could call on to come and help us with whatever we're doing. Maybe we're about to do a carving, we want to have a, a guiding spirit, and uh, we may have a personal uh, animal spirit, like a wolf or a, a bear, orca, or anything, that uh, we feel the spirit of that animal is there to help us. So we would call upon them, you know, the spirit of those animals to come with us, be part of the welcome. And so in the same way that this uh, kind of calling in and bringing the animal close to you, is also part of the process of the making of the pole. Calling them close so that you could access some of the spirit of, that they bring mm. and try to incorporate it into your poles, you know, or your carving. Yeah. That's very impressive, mm. actually. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Never thought about it. It's but very uh, that would be the reason we would try to work with an ancestor or uh, animal spirit is for their help, mm -hmm. mm, which mm. they would lend to us. That particular rock, Quintalis. Yeah. It's a heart of a sea lion or a seal. That's what we think they are representative of, yeah. I collected it, you know, from On the, the beach. shoreline because it, it was such a... It's a certain material. You don't just grab oh. any old rock and no. say, this is the heart of the sea lion. You know, you have to know what kind of rock it is first. I don't know the scientific names for rocks or anything. It has a very particular surface. It does, yeah. Yeah. There's all of these history of meanings embedded in things, isn't there? In the culture. You know, in rocks, in yeah. wood, coming out of the landscape, coming out of the place. It's not mm -hmm. a landscape, really, is it? It's a kind of place of living beings. Yeah. yeah. Well, <clears throat> our beliefs are everything is, has uh, got a, a life and a spirit, even a rock. It has a life, it has a spirit, same as we do. And... Um, you may take the physical form away, that goes for us as well, but you can never take the spiritual, It's uh, because it's part of the creation, mm. creator and creation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It continues through time, yeah. Yeah. carved a number of welcome poles that are placed in important public places, you know, places where um, medical attention and healing occur, such as the Saanichton Hospital, or places of learning, such as at UVic, or places of travel, where people come from all over the world, you know, enter and leave with Saanich territory, such as the airport in Sydney. And I'm just curious to know how you go about deciding what you want the welcome poles to look like. And does the place itself, where it is erected, influence your designs and the meaning of, of the pole? Well, personally, I um, want to share maybe the meaning of that place, uh, maybe something to do with the history of the first people that are, there, that are here. Because before we put um, the carvings at the airport, there was nothing. 
And when people arrived here, they would walk right directly to their bus or their limousine or their car or whatever and be gone. But now, when they arrive at the airport, there we have three three carvings down there. Uh, well configured and a couple other animal bird poles. But now when they come, they say they'll stop and they'll, hey, there must be some First Nations people around here. And uh, we want the general public to know that we're here. We don't want them to think that we're in, gone yeah. or invisible because we're not. We're taking part in uh, society. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll use our artwork to say welcome or goodbye or let's talk or, you know, different mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. The placing of these poles are so very important, aren't they? For instance, as a non-Indigenous person living on your territory, it matters to me, for sure, to know that the terrain that I'm encountering or moving through, mm-hmm. which nation I, the terrain mm-hmm. is within. Mm-hmm. So I, I think this is really a very important kind of role to take on, isn't it, in terms it of is. the... Yeah. I understand you also had a pool in front of a police station as mm-hmm. well. At one it's point. out here now. They um, hit the panic button. They even took down Sir John A. MacDonald by City Hall. I don't know if they did that just to steer our feelings away from them wanting to take this pole down. Mm -hmm. But I know the pole that was at the police station caused controversy. There was controversy about the uh, whole idea of doing it. There was controversy about it being carved. There was controversy about it being installed. Because as you know, as well as I do, like just about half the people are racists, you know, and a lot lot of the, the racists have a lot to say too. And so it caused uh, controversy within the police station. And um, I know that because I had a couple of good friends who were policemen. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, they they told me, and, you know, Tomas and not everybody likes this, but uh, there's enough of us that do like it, you know. And eventually it was taken down. Mm, That's a shame. And they're trying to initiate a meeting with me now so that they can install some other kind of work within the police station or on the outside of it. Tomasin's artwork also adorns the main entrance of Klewonach Tribal School on Sartre Preserve. There are three different artworks, a pole that features an assemblage of animals such as an eagle, a whale, a bear, a frog, a salmon, etc. And the pole stands in front of a covered walkway, the canopy of the walkway is carved in the shape of a large eagle in flight, with its wings splayed above one's head. And as you head toward the school doors, on the face of the building, high above your head, is a painted image of a thunderbird. And the thunderbird is known to be a powerful spirit in Wasanich culture. The school opened in 1989, and I asked Tomasin to talk more about the development of these artworks and their meaning. They will know. Place of survival. Place of survival. And it's very suiting for the school. Yeah. Because the kids all go, there's like an average of about 200 kids at the school. Uh, and they go there, they learn skills to survive. So Fairwell uh, Nook is a good name for the school, Place of Survival. There's a brand new buildings and everything. And um, they decided that would be a good idea to have some significant artwork. And I was chosen to do that work. 
Yeah. Uh, it's it's spectacular. I, I I can't think of a more beautiful school, mm, <laughs> honestly. Yeah. Yeah. One, I'm yeah. quite happy and proud of that figure of the eagle that you walk under when you go in. Another thing that makes me feel good about the carvings there is that the um, animals and birds or whatever was depicted on them, they were chosen by the elders of the day. Yeah, they, they, uh, they surveyed the elders. What would you like to see, you know? And then they all put an idea forth, and those ideas were given to me. And uh, from there I developed the um, structure of the pole because there's, there's a rope on that pole up there too because the rope is very important in the Saanich culture because there was a flood that flooded the world at one time. The water actually rose and flooded the earth. And uh, we are the survivors, I'll tell you, of that great, great uh, deluge that happened. And um, some people had visions of what was going to happen and told it to their family members. And they got ready with their great, huge canoes and uh, a lot of food because we used to have boxes like this here, storage boxes that were uh, airtight or whatever, and we could store dried food in them. And so they got collected all kinds of things for survival, like uh, uh, blankets, capes, hats, you know, anything, bedding. And when the waters did rise, um, I know the Bible story says the water came out of the sky, 40 days and 40 nights, and the waters rose. Well, maybe it did rain hard during the time period, but we we say the water rose from the ocean. Even mm -hmm. at Sayout, I notice part of the reserve there are the tsunami warnings of the signage of the, mm -hmm. at the shoreline. So the this moment in history of the signage, mm -hmm. um, to my mind, when I saw those tsunami warnings, I thought immediately mm -hmm. of uh, the reality of that story yeah. and the reality of this place. Uh, there there were signs that led up to this, like earthquakes. Mm -hmm. A lot of earthquakes, they say, preceded the rising of the water. And those who were ready would have went with the uh, rise to the mountaintops, and that's why we're here. Uh, Saanich people, our great canoes went to top, and we tied our canoes to the top of that this mountain over here, mm -hmm. um, who someone named Mount Newton, and it had a name already, Flewilnuch, and uh, so they changed our name to their name. I guess it was the 80s too, uh, when we started to make sure our name was put back on there, Flewilnuch mm -hmm. Mountain, but still a lot of people call it Mount Newton. We haven't got a clue who this Newton guy was, and how dare he think he can throw our name off and put his name on there. You know, his history is probably in Europe, you know, and our history belongs there, so, yeah. I just want to pause here briefly to reflect on the full import of Tomalson's question. Who was this Newton guy, and what did he do to deserve having a mountain named after him? I did a bit of rooting around on the internet to find out more, and I was thinking that it must be named after the 17th century English scientist, Sir Isaac Newton. Surely the early British colonists would choose someone admirable to celebrate the land that they were so busily claiming as their own. But as it turns out, no. The naming of this mountain is far more revealing of the nature of the British colonial project and local political culture. 
Newton was in fact an assistant draftsman to a land surveyor called J.D. Pemberton, and both of these men worked for the Hudson's Bay Company, one of Canada's earliest corporations. So on the one hand, in 1891, the mountain was named after this functionary, a petty bureaucrat who none of us know of or care about, but who was rewarded for servicing the land grabs of the nascent state. And on the other hand, as Tomosin has already told us, the mountain's Sinchothan name, Cleonach, alerts us to the fact that the mountain is a sacred site because it was an important place of refuge during the event of a momentous tsunami that washed over a sizable portion of what is currently called Vancouver Island. Also, it's important to know that this tsunami is known by a number of First Nations that reside along the shores of the island, so Cleonach is an important site in the true history of this land. And I can't think of a better example to illustrate why it matters that Wasanich place names are restored within the whole territory. This terrain is riddled with tributes to unremarkable people, whose only achievement was that they claimed land that was not theirs to take. But that's another story, for another podcast perhaps. Let's return to our conversation with Tomasin. There is yet more to understand about the story of Klewonach. The pole that you showed us when we first started talking, which has the, yes, yeah. in your workshop, it has these ropes on the bottom. Could you say more about the use of the rope in your, your work? Sure. Well, the rope was actually created on top of that mountain. The people were there for a long time. They did take some rope too with them, and they made rope all the time. They would make it from the inner bark of the cedar tree which could be uh, become very pliable, and they'd make as many strands as they want and then weave it together. They made rope and it was really strong. And um, so different families would make this much rope, another family, and then they would put it all together. So the, the rope is in my mind, and the way I put it in my work is basic survival. That's why it's on the bottom. The way you've described it, it sounds to also be kind of symbolic of unity and cooperation mm -hmm. and, you know, families working together. That's to right, yeah. yeah. See, one person never could make that much rope, but mm. different family members, um, they collect the material in the right time of the year, late spring when the bark would come off the trees. Very easy. You can't get the bark off a tree late in the fall. It's glommed right on, but in the spring, when the sap runs under the under the bark, you can peel big pieces off. And uh, there was quite, quite a process to mm. getting it ready for so you could make it into rope. But uh, that was part of the skills that they learned when they were uh, in our heyday. And I like to put it on my pole, uh, my carvings. And I put it on just about every one of them now. I was going to change from rope to one to put like a school of salmon on one. One when it had a more marine theme to it, yeah. Mm -hmm. But work some rope into it. Yeah. The one at the tribal school up there has got a rope all the way through, all the way to the top. Yeah. Yeah, nice. And so the cedar tree, I understand in the the, the particular story you've you've related that the, also it was the cedar tree that the Sainich anchored or tied their canoes to in mm -hmm. the raft. So they rafted themselves together. Mm -hmm. And then they also had the rope go round. Was it a cedar tree on the top of um, the mountain? No, or? it was an arbutus. A uh, cedar tree is, uh, was used for, we call the cedar tree the sacred tree because mm -hmm. it gave so many different things. It gave us our clothes. It gave us our canoes. 
It gave us our houses. It, it uh, gave us medicines. And uh, there are so many things that the cedar tree gave us. But the one that um, we used when we were, the waters rose, and we used the cedar rope to tie to the arbutus tree because arbutus, um, you will encounter this sometime during your life. You'll see a cedar tree, I mean an arbutus, could be leaning out over the bank with water below, but there it is, it's so strong, its roots can just cling on, so that's why the arbutus is part of the survival. I just wanted to say thank you very much. I've learned a lot, and I hope mm -hmm. the listeners enjoy the conversation, and mm -hmm. thank you again for your time and for your wonderful contribution to the world. <laughs> mm. oh, that's nice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Talking Territory was produced for the Tree Museum by me, Fawn Daphne Plessner, and Irmar Sitbon. The music was created and performed by Irmar Sitbon too, and a special thanks goes to Tomas and Charles Elliott, without whom this podcast would not have been possible. The Tree Museum is an art project that examines the aesthetics and politics of suburban expansion and its impact on forest habitats and animal lives. The museum is based in the unceded territory of the Musanish First Nation peoples, for further information about this podcast and to learn more about the Tree Museum, please go to tree-museum.com. <laughs>